Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. While researching last week's episode, I came across the fascinating history of black barbershops. So you know how today they're often a hangout spot for black men. Guys talk life, relationships, careers, whatever. Well, the earliest black-owned barbershops were the exact opposite. Black barbers did not serve black customers. But despite the rough start, barbering has become a solid path for black entrepreneurs. It's one of the few trades with a low barrier to entry. You need skill, but not a lot of money to become a barber. There are less systemic barriers compared to some of the other trades, which is partly why 25% of all barbers are black. So my late grandfather was a barber. Meet Quincy Mills. He's basically our tour guide in this episode. Quincy is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland College Park. He's also the author of a book called Cutting Along the Color Line. The book details barbershop capitalism and culture at the intersection of race while showing how barbershops were the center of civil rights movements. Let's start at the beginning. Black barbering is rooted in slavery. Back then, barbers focused on facial hair. Black men became barbers as enslaved people. The enslavers wanted a body servant. They wanted someone to groom them and to wait on them in certain kinds of ways. And so they would often tap one of their enslaved to sort of do that work. During times of economic downturn in the plantation economy, they would often hire out their enslaved in the city, particularly slave folk who were skilled. They would hire them out in the city to earn money. Half of that, some of that money they could keep the other part of it they would have to give to the enslaver. Some black barbers were free men. Free black barbers would take on enslaved barbers, train them and have them work in the shop on their own time. This obviously gave those enslaved barbers a sense of mobility, a sense of freedom from the plantation. But to be clear, they were still enslaved. Whenever the enslaver wanted them back, they had to go back to the plantation, right? So it was a fleeting freedom, if you will, right? A quasi-freedom, but obviously free is free. There's no middle ground here. All of this creates an interesting dynamic, to say the least. Because what would compel a white man to sit in a barber's chair with a enslaved or free black barber standing over them with a straight razor? Why would they even trust the barber to do that? Well, 
they had to believe in the fantasies of black inferiority. They had to believe that these black barbers were quite frankly incapable, incapable of striking violence against them. They had to believe this fantasy, that drive to have a black servant was of more value to them than the thought of losing their life. American-born white men had no interest in working as barbers because they associated it with slave labor. In their minds... If it's work that enslaved folk are doing, <laughs> then it must be unskilled because those enslaved folk, they're not smart enough to do skilled work. So as a white man, I'm not going to be a barber because that's beneath me. Immigrant white men, specifically those who were German and Irish, felt differently. They had been barbers in the old country, so they had no hang-up. They understood, right? They understood the opportunity, right? They understood the, the industry, the field. Native white men, not so much. So barbers in the North, white and immigrants. Barbers in the South, black. And there's a strong possibility that some of these shops in the South were part of the Underground Railroad. There's small evidence that when the lights turned out and the clothes sign went on, that maybe there was something happening outside of normal business hours. There's a couple of pieces of evidence to indicate that during slavery, there were barbers who would house African-Americans who were fleeing slavery and they just needed a spot to rest overnight, but they'd have to be gone by the morning when they opened the door, the shop door. So I think there was more happening that frankly, the record just doesn't fully flesh out, the record being the archive. After the Civil War and emancipation, for the most part, black barbers are still only cutting white hair. And by the 1870s and 80s, debates are emerging within black political circles about the business decisions these barbers are making. Very many black leaders, like Frederick Douglass, were making a very strong case that black barbers needed to, quote unquote, become men and make more hard decisions about what was happening in their barbershops. So they needed to stop capitulating to the wishes of their white customers and welcome black men to their barbershops because this is what free men do. They make very manly decisions. Quincy says the black barbers that were towing the line were working in cities like Atlanta and Durham, downtown areas that were essentially built after the war and catered to white industrialists. Some would describe this as trading deference for dollars. A tale of two ends. You have these 19th century black barbers making money hand over fist, exclusively grooming white folk. This dichotomy becomes central in helping to create a black middle class. But I wonder if these black barbers felt any guilt or shame because they were servicing other people, but not their own. Or am I looking at this through an exclusive 2022 lens? One of the most difficult things to uncover as a historian is what people thought, especially if they don't write it down. And so we have to sort of extrapolate from their actions, from wordplay, from altercations. So don't fully know. There were Black writers who actually penned novels and short stories imagining what these barbers thought about those decisions. So they were thinking about what these barbers were possibly thinking. And that's what fiction does. You can sort of imagine. So, you know, what would have gone through the head of a black barber who had a straight razor across <laughs> a white man's throat? What might they have been thinking? Yet, 
what we do know is that black robbers felt in some ways captive. They didn't have much of a choice because at the time, black men didn't have a whole lot of disposable, black communities didn't have a whole lot of disposable income. And so if you're looking at the value of a market based on money, it's like, well, there's these wealthy white folk. Let me sort of, you know, try my luck here. Secondly, I'll say that many of those barbers, while they did not allow black men to come to their shop, and they didn't allow it because their white customers wouldn't allow it. Let, let's be clear. Right? They, these weren't decisions that the barbers were making. These were mandates that their white customers were actually insisting on. But many black barbers, especially those very wealthy ones, would use their resources that they gained from the barbershop in service of Black communities. Like George Myers, he was a Black barber in Cleveland in the late 1800s and an influential voice in the Republican Party. Now, it's worth noting, the political parties back then were not like the parties today. In the simplest terms, those who were Republican at the time would align more with today's Democrats versus today's GOP. But anyway, Myers' barbershop catered to the elite. Presidents, tycoons, you name it. Myers would help Republicans get the Black vote. There are letters from Booker T. Washington to Myers. There are letters from black politicians in the South to George Myers, from the white Republican Party in Ohio to George Myers. I mean, he was a he was a player. He was a major political figure without being a politician. And he only groomed white folks in his barbershop. And this, on the one hand, to be honest, it disturbed me. <laughs> I thought, well, man, you didn't even let the brothers come in to get a haircut? Like, what was... What's happening here? And yet, right, he had political clout, like he was a mover in black politics here. Myers helped William McKinley, the 25th president, get elected in 1896 by bringing him the black vote. Upon this platform we stand and submit its declaration to the sober and considerate judgment of the American people. Two years later, in 1898, a massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina. That was really a coup. A white mob overthrew the government, forced black and white elected officials out of office, removed black police officers, destroyed black businesses, and killed an estimated 60 to more than 300 people. Lynchings were happening nationwide, including Ohio. So Myers pushed the Republican administration to do something, say something. He called in the political favors he earned after getting Republicans the black vote. Other black barbers in similar positions, ones who were made wealthy by serving only white clients, do similar things in that they begin using their power to help black people. For example, black people couldn't get life insurance, so two different black barbers, one in Atlanta and one in Durham, founded insurance companies for black people. So these are folks who were not disconnected from black communities, but they were certainly making these decisions that many folks in the black community did not like. And in fact, there were many African-Americans who protested <laughs> outside of these barbershops because they were like, yo, how can you talk about civil rights, but deny it to your own folks, <laughs> right? So there's some really interesting dynamics and conversations happening within black communities around these barbers' decisions to exclusively groom white men. Nothing lasts forever. And black men begin getting pushed out of barbering. German barbers begin to get organized in the 1890s. They feel barbering should be more professional. And I'm doing air quotes here. They form a union and start lobbying. They push for licensing laws. 
They argue that a licensing law would protect the public from unsanitary barbers, right? So this is about protecting the public. So one should not be able to just grab some shears, grab a location and open up a barbershop. But one should actually go to a barber college. There should be barber colleges. And one should know the anatomy of the body. And one should know all the proper protocols for keeping a safe and sanitary barbershop. And the state should regulate that. Well, as you might imagine, black men were not allowed into the white barber college. Quincy says white barbers wanted to wedge themselves into the lucrative market, especially in southern downtown districts. Creating racist barriers helped them achieve that. Black barbers tried to oppose the laws. In fact, Myers was successful at this for 28 years. And each time, Myers would say, yo, I've been really helpful in getting black voters to vote the Republican ticket. If you let this law pass, we will not forget it. Technology also played a role into black men being pushed out of the field. In 1903, Gillette introduced the first safety razor. Men could now shave at home. This new tech and licensing laws reskilled barbers. Quincy says whereas white men thought cutting facial hair was effeminate, cutting hair on top of the head, well, that was a manly job. But there's another shift. There's a new generation of black men entering barbering. This generation had been born after the Civil War and had come of age in the 1890s. They wanted to open barbershops in black communities to work with black folk. In addition, Jim Crow is on the rise and it's harder for black men to find a space in downtown business districts. Black communities are now turning inward to support each other. All of these factors are working together to shift black barbers from downtown business districts to black neighborhoods and communities. There were a few, very few, Black-owned shops that still catered exclusively to white men up until the 60s. But for the most part, Black barbershops and beauty salons emerge as incredibly important spaces. These were some of the few spaces in the public square, the public sphere, that Black men and women could go to without being under surveillance by white folk. There was a church and there might be a black bar. And certainly there were black fraternal societies, so they had spaces. But those other spaces, you know, like for a church, you are, you know, you're part of the faith. There's a membership requirement. And for the societies, you had to, there's a membership requirement. For Robert, there's no membership requirement, right? This is one of the few organic black-owned spaces where just a stranger and a community, like in folk who everybody knows, can come together in public, but also in private, because it's not a public park. So they emerge, I argue, as private, black private spaces in the public sphere. Like during the depression, these shops gave unemployed people a place to hang out and talk with others struggling to find work. We now enter the civil rights era, where arguably the most important institution for organizing is the church. <laughs> Black preachers had a flock of hundreds or thousands of people in their congregation, but barbershops also became an organic organizing space. Why? Because barbers and beauticians, they also had a congregation. <laughs> Smaller congregation than in the church, but they had a committed group of folk who regularly came in to, to talk, to get their hair cut, to get shaved, etc. 
They would often cut one or two generations of folk in the same family. Because shops were Black-owned, they had an economic autonomy that allowed them to open up their spaces to civil rights groups to hold direct action meetings or voter registration, things that would have been incredibly dangerous for Black families in the South to do in their homes. The barbershop was also a place where some men came into consciousness. This is the first time in the country that Negroes will be organized for their own political interest. Like the political activist Stokely Carmichael, his Trinidadian dad tried to take him to an Irish barbershop in the Bronx, but the barber wouldn't cut his hair. They had to instead go to a shop in Harlem. Carmichael wrote that he learned about things like the Brown decision at the barbershop. Some barbers even mandated customers go vote. This one barber in Richmond, Virginia had a sign that said, if you don't register to vote, don't talk politics in here. Quincy says these spaces were not inherently democratic. They were what the barber allowed them to be. And so a barbershop could be exceptionally homophobic if indeed the barber doesn't step in to say, no, 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 that's not how we're going to do it here. A barbershop could be exceptionally sexist. Less the barber, I think more barbers are active in saying that's not how we're going to do it here. What is the future of barbering, especially after COVID brought some changes to the industry? That answer after this quick break. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. In the same way barbering changed throughout time, it's expected Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Expected to morph again. All barbershops and hair salons now been ordered to close because of concerns over COVID-19. Some barbershops became appointment only during COVID as a safety precaution. Owners try to avoid groups of people in small spaces. If that becomes a holdover, it would likely change the landscape of the space more black barbershops are going to be appointment only. So if it's appointment only, you don't have folks hanging around. If you don't have folks hanging around, the community is just a little bit different. Gentrification may also cause a shift in these spaces. And black barbers are also trying to figure out how to scale up. Some are looking to try and create a sort of supercuts franchise for black men. But Quincy argues that would take away the brand, the thing that makes black barbershops special. I would argue the major value of black barbershops is its smallness, is its localness, is its sort of hominess and sort of knowing everybody and being able to hang out and talk and that community. That sense of the community is often part of the service. The skill that these black creative folk know how to etch Michael Jordan in the back of my head, <laughs> right? That's what keeps me going to the black barbershop and not the white barbershop because they, one, they can't do that over there. Two, I, I don't really want to talk about Malcolm X in the white barbershop, right? So what does it mean to scale a black barbershop up? 
He wants barbering schools to help with that question by including more training on business education to help barbers think outside the trade itself. He'd also like politics taught considering barber shops are regulated by the state, i.e., politicians. Quincy argues barber colleges aren't doing enough in another area inclusivity. Remember how barber colleges didn't allow black men to attend? They also didn't teach much, if anything at all, about black hair. And that's a carryover that remains in some barber schools today. In New York, for example, part of the exam includes a practical test where a student has to cut someone's hair. They use shears or scissors for that test. Well, we know that black people have a range of hair types from straight to curly to tightly coiled, right? We got it all. However, what we also know is that in most black barbershops, they use the clippers more often than they use the scissors, although they, they use both and they know how to use both, but they use the clippers. And so what does it mean that on the practical exam, they don't have to practice with the clippers? What does it mean that white barbers who may likely, right, cater to other white folk with straight hair, what does it mean that they don't get practiced using clippers? What does it mean for that black man who goes into that white barbershop saying, hey, you know, can I get a haircut? What's the barber gonna say? Well, I don't know how to cut your hair. Which is what they said in the 1950s and 1960s, right? I don't, I don't know. No, you should know because you're going to school for it. Quincy's book details so much that we didn't even get into. But one thing he did stress is that we tend to romanticize barbershops. While these are spaces of fellowship, they're also someone's bread and butter. While these spaces give barbers a path to financial stability, many barbers don't have health insurance. And maybe that's where the future of barbering lies and more. More advocacy, more money, more of the things the earliest black barbers couldn't even imagine. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying our Beyond Black History Month series, please subscribe to our podcast. We're basically everywhere. Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, and on the Odyssey app. Also, please rate and review our podcast. Beyond Black History Month is a production of WCBS News Radio 880 in 1010 Wins. Special thanks to producers Dempsey Pillott, Jill Webb, and Andy Egan Thorpe. Tim Schaud is the WCBS 880 brand manager, Ben Meverack is a 1010 Wins brand manager, and I'm Femi Redwood. Thanks for listening. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.